Hello and welcome to Franklin Covey's newest podcast, C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller. That's me, I'm your host. You may recognize me as the host of Franklin Covey's other wildly famous and now largest leadership podcast globally called On Leadership with Scott Miller. After 200 episodes, we found that some of the most interesting conversations, the most downloaded episodes were actually from founders, entrepreneurs, and CEOs. We decided to spin off a new podcast and have a conversation directly each week with a member of the C-suite. And today, our guest is Amy Errett. She is the founder and CEO of Madison Reed, a name that you can't possibly escape in the last many years. Amy, Eric, welcome to C-Suite Conversations. Thank you so much, Scott. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here. Thank you for joining us in what is the you know, explosive trajectory of your company. For those who aren't familiar yet, the last few hairless people in the world that perhaps aren't familiar with your company, give us just a little bit of an overview on Madison Reed. Absolutely. Um, we are a hair color company, and uh, we are what's called an omni-channel uh, brand, meaning that we have our own stores where we color your hair, and we also sell uh, hair color to you to do at home. The trick of all of this is that we have better ingredients, so we've taken out harsh chemicals, kind of one of the first to be able to do that with efficacy. We use technology to color match you. We deliver it right to your door, or you could come into one of our 51 stores uh, by the end of this year, over 80, and we will actually do your hair uh, for you um, with our hair color. And we also sell in a small beauty retailer called Alta, where we have a partnership. So that's us. I love the journey. Your hair looks great, by the way. And we'll talk more about the massive uh, uh, transition of your business during the pandemic. It's a perfect example of the silver lining, if you will. In the midst of the trauma and the, the unmistakable tragedy of this pandemic, there are some great success stories of how people have tw- pivoted and how their business model has met a need. So today I bet you'll be millions of entrepreneurs and business leaders who are inspired by your journey. Amy, I feel like we're friends. We've actually never met in person before, but I am one of the millions of people that heard your commercials on Sirius Radio, on CNN for many years. I felt like I knew you when your voice came on. Uh, It was very comforting. Talk a bit about how the brand was launched. Yeah, so we've been at this for a little over seven years. Um, As you noted, one of the uh, really significant brand building things that we did in advertising was we were one of the first uh, companies uh, that's, you know, in in our class of what I would call a new consumer brand that broke out and decided that radio podcast, the audio Um, sort of uh, explanation of our business was important. And the reason why, frankly, is because this is a personal story. This is emotional. And uh, audio allows you to tell that story over a 60-second increment. uh, And that's been incredibly successful for us. As proven by the brand recognition. Amy, let's rewind at least a couple of years. What was your first real sort of formal job out of high school or college? Uh, Well, um, my first formal job out of high school was to, I worked in an insurance company that a friend of mine's dad owned. And uh, I I decided at that moment that insurance wasn't for me. Uh, So I I moved from that. And then after college, my first job was Dunn and Bradstreet. I don't know if anybody remembers that name, but I was a credit analyst at Dunn and Bradstreet. And then I actually went on a finance track 
for many years um, uh, as being a banker and investment banker, uh, went to Wharton uh, to get my MBA. Didn't learn the first time that I didn't like investment banking, so I tried it again. <laughs> uh, didn't like it a second time, as, as I say, uh, not, did not work for all those involved. Um, and then decided to go on an entrepreneurial track, which I've been on ever since. Amy, one of the stories I like most about your journey, mainly because it's so replicable, is you had a role in life as a, a member of a venture capitalist firm, and you were making decisions, I'm guessing, with others on different businesses to invest in and, and grow. And a very small passing business called Dollar Shave Club came past your desk, and you learned a few things from that. Recreate that story, because I think probably the insights and the wisdom from the lessons learned there can help everyone who's got a side hustle, who's a leader in a company, or thinking of forming some entrepreneurial venture. Yeah, it's a great point, Scott. I believe, and so I'll go through that journey quickly in a second, but I believed every, every great company, primarily consumer company, comes from some recognition that a founder has of a consumer pain point. So the um, story about uh, Dollar Shave, I was uh, a general partner at a uh, consumer-facing only uh, venture fund called Mavron. Many of people might know Howard Schultz as one of the founders of Mavron with Dan Levitan. And I ran the Bay Area office. Mavron was a Seattle-based founded uh, venture fund. Um, and I did that for six and a half years. And yes, Dollar Shave Club came across and pitched us and uh, we didn't do the investment. Uh, but what I've stayed very close to the founder. Um, uh, but what was clear to me was I was just intrigued by this meta sea change in consumer packaged goods and how consumers were thinking about that in the modern world of technology. Did the shelf really matter anymore? Could someone uh, basically disrupt that uh, and, and develop a close uh, emotional connection with a consumer. So I went down a path, which was not thinking I was going to start another company. I was a three-time entrepreneur, then turned venture capitalist, and looked at what would be the woman's analog to shaving, meaning what was that repetitive thing that women did all the time that no matter what happened in the world, and frankly, now I can say even in pandemic, uh, she's going to color her hair. Very true, by the way. Um, that we that that I could explore and hair color was at the top of the list of uh, analysis that I did of what product size of the prize repetitive usage and so then from there just went on a journey to see if there was a business model that could actually disrupt the incumbents and hence uh, about a year later uh, Madison Reed was founded formed and we went on our journey. Uh, to disrupt this industry, which we've been doing ever since. Which is a bit of an understatement. My sense is that the pandemic brought not just a whole new level of challenge to you, but probably exponentiated your business. We'll talk a little bit about the sourcing of your products and what it was like to be the CEO of a sourcing company, a consumer package company during the pandemic. What are some of the lessons you learned during this two-year pandemic that you, uh, that you harnessed, if you will, to help to grow the business? So lesson number one that I learned was that our thesis of uh, the fact that no matter what happens, this is a category that a woman is going to care to do, uh, even during a pandemic when she's looking at herself at Zoom um, during those that first year. And even after the first year, 
it was incredible to me the velocity in which he came back into our stores to do this thing. So the first thing that I learned was that the emotional connection to how your hair looks um, was absolutely critical in, in what was and what will be seen as one of the most um, pivotal parts of both consumer behavior and being a CEO during this last two years. Mm -hmm. First thing I learned was check, we are in the right area code in terms of what the business is. The second thing I learned was really much more about team. And, you know, even though our business exploded in the on the at-home side of our business, because remember, we both have an at-home business and we have a business where we do your hair, so a offline business. What was uh, important to me to understand was that culture mattered, that the way that we set up the safety and security for our team members, ones in stores at the time, uh, and struggling that the anxiety level of what was happening to our team members was massive. And I can get into a little bit about how we sort of handled that, because I think that was also a pivotal moment of understanding that from an execution standpoint, we could continue to um, actually thrive in a very anxious and, as you said, traumatic part of what's happened in the world. Yeah, I think it's important to recognize that at the time of this taping, you know, I have friends right now that are intubated in hospitals. I have friends that have COVID and who are struggling tremendously. I have friends that have not been touched at all. I have friends who are vaccinated and unvaccinated. There's no question this has been a traumatic time for everyone. You have lots of lessons to share. I want to go deeper into that um, invitation and perhaps start with your supply chain. I, I believe I read once where you have a very innovative, ethical way in which you source your products and, and you have a foreign partner in terms of supply chain in, in Italy and such uh, sourcing. We talk a bit about the challenges. Italy, of course, was hit unrecognizably hard as, you know, as an American early on. Talk about some of the experiences you had with your supply chain in Italy and the lessons that perhaps are transferable to all of us. Yeah, so great point. So I think many of you are aware of the fact that Lombardy region, in particular in Italy, because if you trace some of back of what happened was that it was fashion week that in fact in Milan uh, created some of the acceleration of COVID in the Lombardy region faster than other regions of the country right at the beginning of actually February of 2020. Um, yes, we have a manufacture our hair color in Italy. And in fact, we manufacture our hair color in the epicenter of the <laughs> Lombardy region. So we were uh, right in the, in the thick of that. So the first thing that we learned was, geez, uh, we had increased demand. So we were selling a box of hair color at that time every five seconds. And it was crazy. And the, and the inventory we had on hand was minuscule compared to what the demand was to fulfill that inventory. And so we got on it really quickly. And in fact, with time zone changes and everything else, there were two things that were going on. One, were we going to demonstrate the level of understanding and having empathy for our part manufacturing partner who was in themselves anxious and having life events, number one. Number two, could our team meet and match the demand of what was going on in execution? And then number three, there was this factor of the government in Italy kind of shutting down everything 
And so that could we be creative? And so one of the things that we were able to figure out was that if we offered to make hand sanitizer for free, we could continue on 24 hour cycles to produce air color and put it in tubes and get it to the US. And in fact, that's what we did. It's extraordinary. It was creative. It was the partner and us working together, but that's what we did. So the factory was kept open. We were making hand sanitizer for free. We were fulfilling Madison Reed hair color and we had figured out a way to get it out of the country with air freight. Um, but the trains that had to keep on running and the boats and the planes um, were extraordinary. And our team formed what we called an emergency response team. And we were meeting every day, seven days a week um, at uh, 6.30 a.m. Pacific time. And that was a seven day a week thing that went on for about seven months. And it was just a group of us that represented different decisions that needed to be made because not only did we have the challenge of getting it out of Italy, then once it got here, it had to get to our DC you know, distribution centers. And then it had to be packed out, kitted, and then shipped to our customers. Now we closed our stores uh, on March 16th, I believe in 2020, we only had 12 stores then, we have 51 now. But even with 12 stores, we had close to 200 team members. So I'll hold that thought and I'll tell you what we did there. Uh, but we also then had to keep our distribution centers open, tons of people getting sick. And then we had to deal with DHL, FedEx and all the goodness that they were experienced, which was not goodness, but really hard. And so we decided on our nickel to upgrade to two-day shipping and did a lot of things that would benefit our customers. Now we have a high subscription-based business. So the good news for us is that we could control when the subscription got there by being able to use technology to say, well, we better send it 12 days in advance instead right. of four days in advance. Yeah. But on new customers, we really had to step up to the plate. Um, and I'm happy to report on that end, like nobody in our factories got sick. Um, we were able to continue to have people's jobs. And more than that, we were able to keep businesses that were really, like what you learn in this, Scott, which is interesting is your ecosystem isn't what it appears to be. We are part of a larger set of issues. So when you have a partner that manufactures, when you have to care about air freight, when you have to care about getting things into a distribution center and the health and safety of those people getting your stuff. And then FedEx and DHL, you are a shared ecosystem. And I think this was a big lesson that we learned that opened our eyes to also the policies of those other companies and what did they mean to us. And so that was a very big opening our eyes. And that's continued because our business shifted the volumes look completely different. Yes, there were some moments between March of 2020 and now January of 2022, hard to believe we've been in this almost two years. There is a repeat right now going on. Um, and you know we're seeing our store, we're not closing our stores because there is still consumer demand, but we have team members that are sick. We have customers that are canceling because they're sick. Uh, and so this, is such an extraordinary moment in being a leader that is so much more complex than just what meets the eye. Amy, thank you for that. I want to pivot in a few moments to the retail, if you will, bricks and mortar side of your business. Before that, I think what's making this podcast so compelling to those who are listening and subscribing is the vulnerability of our guests. I'm guessing you got some things wrong. 
if you kind of look back at the last two years, independent of the obvious things you got right, given the nature of your remarkably loyal business and all your customers, in hindsight, what are some lessons you learned about people, culture, you call it ecosystem, I might call it interdependence. If you could rewind and make some decisions differently as the CEO and founder, owner, what could you share that others might benefit from? I don't think that I understood the magnitude of the great resignation, right? I don't think that I really understood the anxiety that our team members were. I, I understood my own anxiety. I understand my team members' anxiety, but I wasn't living in their shoes. Yeah. And so although we did a lot of things about mental health support, those kinds of things, the kind of pressure and the, I didn't realize the, the, fast forward into, do you have an office anymore? Do, does anybody want to come to it? <laughs> I didn't realize the positives of working at home, the challenges. And I didn't realize that my position prior to COVID was very much an office position. It was, I was old school in the sense of like, yes. people need to be together, build community, yep, yep. those kinds of things. Don't work from home, right? Like, and I didn't realize that that also puts a certain kind of pressure on people like a very intense amount of commuting pressure and all of the things that go into not having proper childcare and those kinds of things. I don't think that I got that part right. I think we're getting it right now as we're thinking about hybrid approaches. And there's a lot of things that would tell you that hybrid approaches have a lot of risk to them, meaning work from home some days, come into an office some days. I don't, you know, so if I had to redo that again, I would have rewound and thought of this differently uh, well before the pandemic. So then when we moved into, into it, it wasn't like ripping a Band-Aid off, right? It took us a while in our own productivity to get to work together relative to Zoom. I think that um, we weren't prepared in some of our own infrastructure. And I think that was something that we needed to, we knew we needed to do um, but we hadn't invested ahead of that curve. And I think that cost us some ability to rise to this occasion more swiftly in certain kinds of ways. So, you know, all in all, I mean, I'm not just saying this, like I'm very proud of how we handled this. One thing I didn't say to you is that we closed our stores. We had 200 employees. We didn't lay off anybody. We moved all of them to our call center because those are all certified licensed colorists sent them all, I think we tapped out the Bay Area in, in Google Chromebooks, sent everybody one of those in a headset, trained them about how to deal with customers online in 10 days, and then turned on that workforce so that we would save their jobs, have them change, you know, sort of have career skills. That part was amazing. But again, I don't think I understood the anxiety that that caused people that you know, most of those people stayed with us and came back to stores, but I don't think we understood the really emotional nature of just being afraid to leave your house or that your older parent gets sick or these are really like trying times. I fear that we've all become desensitized to them, which I think is absolutely the opposite reaction that we should be happening like, oh yeah, it's COVID yet. Yeah. No, no, this is you know, the Madison Reed is 18. And I remember in our lifetime, I'm a lot older, uh, you know, what have been the defining moments in the world that I remember, um, you know, certainly 9-11, you know, being right at the top of that, being a you know, New Yorker and having lots of friends that, 
you know, didn't fare so well during that and being in financial services and stuff like that. Like that was a defining moment. I think there are defining moments in how the world goes forward that as leaders, we need to understand in terms of our team members, our workforce, our partners, the, you know, interdependencies, as you put it. Amy, this week I heard Ariana Huffington renamed the Great Resignation the Great Reevaluation. And I think there's so much truth to that, right? Everyone is reevaluating their life, their purpose, their values, what they want to do, what they will and won't accept from their leader. I think there's great wisdom in, in Ms. Huffington's insight there. How are you different? I want to say post-pandemic. We are most discernibly not post-pandemic. How are you different as a leader as a result of the things that you and your team got right, the things that right now you're being graciously introspective on in terms of what you got wrong? What's it like to report to you now versus what it might have been like to report to you two years ago? So uh, it's a great question. I, I pride myself, the truth is, in, in being a very human leader and uh, being somebody who's very approachable, you know, I still interview every single person in HQ, even over Zoom before we make the offer. The same in our leadership in our stores. And there's a simple reason why is that it has everything to do with me making myself available as a demonstration to the fact that I just am in a different job than somebody else. I'm not better than they are. I, I want to be human in my leadership. I want to be a servant leader. Those things are important. They were important uh, pre-pandemic. But I think where I've changed is, um, I, you said something that was very interesting, which is like, if you are not involved in being present and having more self-awareness about yourself right now, I don't know what could ever happen in the world that wouldn't show you that self-awareness. So like, I've taken stock. Oh geez, is this what I should be doing? Is this my life calling? Is this my ability? Am I being called to service here? You know, our, you know, it sounds like it's hair color, but it's really about confidence to women and it's about better ingredients and it's about actually unlocking, unleashing the stigma that women don't feel beautiful and they don't uh, understand that companies have a role in giving them better ingredients, access, convenience, price point, right? So there's always been a mission, but I have gotten more dedicated to this mission of our team members, that I understand the team members experience equals your customer's experience. And I have become obsessed with my own uh, way of dealing with my own levels of anxiety. I, I adapted a a meditation practice during this, you know, I got a coach. I started to become more aware that my anxiety and my fears don't do my team any good, that I need to be more self-aware. This isn't, you're not the CEO and that doesn't give you the right to be just fully who you are while other people can't be fully who they are. Mm. So I have taken mm. this time to be self-reflective, present, much more vulnerable and in a, and, you know, I have lunch with the team every Wednesday, have since the company started seven and a half years ago, now on Zoom, not in person. I have found myself, there were times that I've been emotional and cried. There have been times that, that I have left the got to be strong, buck up sort of attitude and just shown people that it's okay to fully be who we are and we got each other, right? Like we got each other's back. And so I think that this is a time for leaders to really understand something. 
you know, the great reevaluation, love the term, is as much for you as anybody else. And in addition, there are silver linings, there's tragedy, there are silver linings everywhere. And I believe that the amount of gratitude that you have as a human being is the amount of happiness that you have, by the way. And I believe that this is a time for you to evaluate, like, not what do you have to do in life, but what do you get to do in life? Like, if this isn't a time to have a bucket of cold water poured on your head, yeah. I don't know mm -hmm. what is. And I think there's a way that we all come out of this with mission, purpose, values, and let's live those. Let's be part of that. Let's have each other in these hard moments, because I think that will carry through to the performance of people's businesses as well. Thank you for that, Amy. Your company is a private company. I don't guess your revenue is public. I see lots of reports that you, you know, uh, are, are well past $100 million, which is amazing, you know, the growth you've had. What's it like being the CEO now of a large organization with thousands of employees and responsibility for philanthropy and legacy and customer engagement and your vendors or your suppliers? What's it like to be the CEO on a day-to-day -day basis? What parts do you like? What parts do you not like? Fantastic question. Uh, I, the truth is that I like almost all of it. Uh, I get to do this. I don't have mm -hmm. to do this. I get to do this. I am blessed to be in this position that many people never get this opportunity to live their dreams and and um, make their customers happy and change their team members' lives. What I love, I love the team part. I love the growth professionally, personally, and financially that we are giving people. I love the opportunity to understand what you just said, that we are part of an ecosystem, right? Philanthropy, how we look at responsibility for people's lives and empowering them to be their best selves, having financial security. Most people don't know this. The average colorist, the average colorist has to have a cosmetology license that costs them somewhere between twenty and twenty-five thousand dollars in debt when they come out of cosmetology school. The average colorist in the U.S. makes sub twenty dollars an hour. Those numbers can't work. Many of those people are women. Many of those people have children. There is a responsibility that I have. You know, most of our colorists are making north of. 35 to $40 an hour, and we pay full benefits. And so what is that responsibility? That's a responsibility that I have as a leader to show these people that if you work hard, if you really work hard, good things will happen. It's something that I try to tell the Madison Reed. It doesn't get handed to you. Life is about a journey of things that work and don't work. What are the parts that I don't like about my job? I have stress. Sometimes I'm not perfect at managing it. I, uh, it's hard to find like moments of downtime, right? Like this is 24 uh, seven. When people tell me about what is your work-life balance? I'm like, hmm. <laughs> okay, well, I think that's a concept. I'm not sure, but I imagine someone's got it, but this baby doesn't. Um, so, you know, but you know what? I'm wired that way. So I don't complain. I get. Yes. the opportunity yes. to do this, yes. right? I'm on the ride of yeah. my life yeah. here. Yes. You've mentioned several times the Madison Reed. You're referring to <laughs> your 18-year-old daughter who has just graduated from college and is working in the firm right now as she decides what's next. 
for for years, you have been a primarily online business with subscription yes. and others, but yet you decided to kind of maybe pivot from your core process, your core value proposition, and you mentioned several times that you have had 50 plus uh, physical stores on your way to 70, and I'm guessing more. Uh, why did you decide to move off what was the core flywheel, to quote Jim Collins in Good to Great? And was that a big risk? Was that a natural thing? And how has that gone for you? Yeah. Um, so the Madison Reed just graduated high school. Sorry, high school. Uh, Sorry, no, high school. that's okay. I, maybe she was a child prodigy. I don't know. <laughs> uh, um, so uh, it's, you're, you're asking a very insightful question. And the truth of it is that it wasn't, a, of course, it was a risk. But the truth is that 48% of women in the U.S. color their hair in a salon. So we knew all along that this mm. wasn't a pivot in our business. Mm. We knew that the TAM couldn't be fully realized, total addressable market couldn't be fully realized unless we actually had services, right? So that was always part of the plan. The reason we started it online was we had to prove there was efficacy in the product. We had to prove that when we put it on someone's head with a lower chemical profile, it could work. There was retention. The business model made sense. So about five and a half years into the business, maybe five years into the business, about two and a half years ago is when we opened our first sort of concept store. And we knew that we had professional grade hair color. So just a technical term is someone in a salon, a colorist is usually using a very different product than the one that you buy on the shelf of Walgreens. Ours is the same. The same product we put on your hair in our hair color bars, the same product you get in a box that we deliver to you. So we had to prove that we could shift this entire paradigm. We have proved it. Um, what is it like? You know, it, uh, an online business is nothing like a, you know, rubber meets the road store business. Yeah. Staffing's different. Um, motivations of team members are different. The way you think about recruiting is different. The um, you know unit economics look different now. The interesting part about our business is as it's come together in omnichannel. What I mean by that is our unit economics in the regions we have stores are crazy, so much better than the regions we don't have stores. So what's and we are we've created a category where twenty percent of the people that use Madison Reed do both things. They actually go into a store sometime to get their hair done. They do it at home sometime because they know that the product has the same portability. So we think we're disrupting both sides of the industry in a really, really interesting way to bypass the large CPG companies. And, um, and it's gone pretty well. There are bumps along the road. We're learning more. We're so much better about real estate site selection, recruiting, how to price our products, service quality, uh, SLAs to time to when you walk in and when you leave. We build all of our own technology on both sides of our business and have really built a seamless business for a consistent customer journey, regardless of where you interact with the brand. Amy, take a moment, reflect before you answer this question. Um, I don't know if everyone is an entrepreneur, but I'm gonna guess most people have a dream and most people have an idea. Everyone has genius within them, whether it be as a product or an inventor, or perhaps they're twisting on an idea that already exists. You obviously are well-educated. You've been an entrepreneurial many times. You are, were a VC funder. You're obviously very competent in terms of your business acumen, although you've mentioned being humbled on several occasions the last few years. What advice would you give 
to the, the CEO, to the solopreneur, to the entrepreneur, to the director of business development, to the stay-at-home dad who's thinking of a side hustle or someone who's got an eBay store and they're thinking of an NFT. Tap into the dream that every human has of financial independence, of getting to get up and enjoy their job every day, not because they have to, but they get to. They've got an idea and they're at some various stages of launch. What are the several most foundational lessons you've learned from a wildly successful entrepreneur and now CEO with everyday setbacks and issues, and we're not diminishing that, Give some advice to us that are thinking of building a business, building a brand. What have you learned the hard way or the easier way that would be helpful for us? The first thing that I learned is my life and my ability to be effective at what I dreamt about and made that be reality really got better when I understood what I was great at and what I wasn't great at. And there are lots of things that I'm not great at. And so this kind of uh, what I would call the, 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 the sort of journey to figure out um, like how to, how to follow those dreams, I think is a thousand percent correlated with a, what I would call the ego check, the reality check of, you know, we get taught in school, especially business school, we're, we're going to be great at everything. Supposed to be great at finance, supposed to be great at marketing, supposed to be really good at product development. Oh, you should be great at, you know, learning how to code. Like the truth is that that's not true, right? And so to be a successful entrepreneur, one needs to be in check with what is it you're great at and where is the thing, and this is the important part, where is the thing that effortlessly just flows through you? You know, Hmm. what is the thing that you have that just is just joy. It is just absolute unmitigated joy that you're doing. And then figuring out whether you have the ability to do more of that and does that sync with the dream that you're thinking about. And then you can you find people who do all those other things that need to get done to run a successful business. Um, and how can you make that work? Do you know one of the big issues is still I'm still involved in venture. I'm a partner at the venture fund, True Ventures, that uh, was a Series A investor of Madison Reed, so I'm involved there. What I try to tell people all the time is there's this, you know, sort of curious desire to be venture-backed. And what I can tell you is that 99.9 probably percent of the companies started in the U.S. should never take venture money um, because it that isn't the the getting the money from certain sources isn't the issue. It is, do you have aligned goals in getting that money? And if your business can't get big enough in a category, you can't give venture returns. And then you go sideways with misaligned goals. So it is absolutely critical that you find your own genius, you understand the unit economics of your business, how you should fund that business, and then put people around you that can make you better. Like my life, changed when I understood that if I put a great CFO and a great COO and a great head of product around me, then I could do my genius. Amy, is it, is it true that I hear you're taking Mark Cuban's chair on Shark Tank? <laughs> uh, no, not true at all. Here. So if that's not true, what's next for you? You've conquered the home hair care subscription business. You are now on your way to probably 100 plus retail stores. You've learned 
how to create a culture where the CEO and the leaders care about not just their customers, but about their people and their stakeholders. You've used the word uh, ecosystem many times. What's next for you in the business? Well, the business is just in the U.S. and you know we have so much headroom. Only 40% of women in the U.S. have heard of us. So that, that may, you know, some people might be like crushed by that. I'm like, woo, we have a great long way to go. So, you know, what's next for me is growing the business and we are going to be a global brand. So certainly what's next for us is hair color is a global issue. So we believe in that. Um, you know, I learned, I have adopted the philosophy in my life that I don't know what's next. I just know mm. that I love today. Huh. And I am, my eye is on this prize to change the entire hair color industry, uh, to do it with um, what I consider to be a sustainable business that cares about ingredients, cares about packaging, cares about our customers' well-being, and also cares about our team members. And I feel like there's more in that platform than you've seen about empowering women and really giving back. So you'll see us doing more around foundation kinds of things and really partnering with folks doing incredible things with young uh, women and, and making the possibilities be real for them and the dreams be uh, real. Uh, and then, you know, I don't, I'm not going to make wine. I don't have any vines in my backyard here and I don't intend to do that. I thought about it, but that was a passing moment of not so good thinking. Um, and then I aspire to continue to give back in the world and, and just be a good human. And I, uh, I think that the rest of those aspirations will take care of themselves, but you haven't seen the best of Madison Reed yet. And one day I'll ring that bell. And I believe that I hope I can ring it with people next to me. And for every woman that never got funded and every person who didn't think they could make a great wage by working hard and earning it, I hope that will be the folks ringing that bell that prove that um, the extraordinary can happen if you are uh, human and ordinary, by the way. Amy, I'll look forward to watching that bell be rung, the metaphorical bell. Hey, thank you for your positively contagious personality. Thank you again today for your vulnerability. Amy, say hello to the Madison Reed for us. Thanks again for your time today on C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller. Thank you, Scott. We'll see you back here next week with another member from the C-Suite. Stay tuned for our next episode.